When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we ask you, as we do week by week, to join us here in this place this morning. We trust that you have kept your promise and are here. May my words now be your words, and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. At a church I served several years ago in a different town, I knew a person, a fixture in our church and in our city, who was offered another job in another town far away. Now, this person loved their current job in our town and loved our church, but was definitely intrigued by this other opportunity. After days and weeks of trying to weigh the positives and negatives, she came to me for advice completely unable to make a decision. She was terrified that she would choose incorrectly, accepting the job in the other town when she was supposed to stay in our town or rejecting it when she was supposed to go. How could she know, she asked me, what God wanted her to do? And at the time, I didn't know how to help her. In fact, it was a third person who had a comforting word And it's one that I have since appropriated and shared with a great number of people in the years since. Here is some good news, and it's going to be the good news of this morning's sermon, as it is the good news of Jesus' interaction with Peter on that beach in John chapter 21. Here is the comforting word. Our God is a redeemer. Indeed, just as we've spent the last several weeks celebrating, he brings life out of death. Even if you make the wrong decision, this wise person told my friend, God will redeem it. That's what he does. Do you recall a few weeks ago when we talked about the Apostle Paul's assertion that all of the accomplishments of his life were garbage? compared to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. He listed his wealth of worldly achievements, his heritage, education, his zeal, and he said that it was all rubbish to him now. Perhaps you'll recall the illustration I used, the bachelor's rose, remember? Well, it's funny, despite how well I still regretfully think that illustration works, there's actually a biblical story that gets at it even more clearly. The story of the Tower of Babel. In Genesis chapter 11. And that story, which is also about humans trying to showcase their accomplishments and abilities, that story will also show us a beautiful example of God's redeeming work, which he reveals so powerfully on this beach around a charcoal fire with Peter shortly after the resurrection. Now, you remember the story of Babel. The descendants of Noah decide that they're going to build a tower to the heavens in order to make a name for themselves. They want to be noteworthy in their own right, their value, obvious. But although they don't realize it, in all their zeal to build this glorious tower, they don't realize that their worth, compared to the surpassing value of God Almighty, 
is actually zero. And so God looks down from heaven, sees their sort of pathetic attempt to usurp his glory, and he judges them for it. In the story, he scatters the people to the four corners of the earth and confuses their languages. To use the framework of my old friend trying to make her decision, the people at Babel have made the wrong choice here to glorify themselves instead of God. Now, of course, unlike hers, theirs is a moral choice. But things, and this is the point here, things have become broken. Things have gone wrong. But there is good news, even for the sinful people of Babel. Our God does not leave the broken thing broken. God does not leave his people scattered. Our God, the God that we are gathered here to worship today, is a redeemer. Now, it doesn't happen until thousands of years later, but on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, Babel is redeemed. The disciples are gathered together in the upper room, and all of a sudden a great wind fills it. Divided tongues as of fire appeared to the disciples and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? You see what's happened. The people from all the way back in the prehistory of Genesis 11 have been living under judgment, scattered by God into disparate languages in every nation under heaven. But now, in light of the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, every language has come together to sing his praises. Languages that were scattered are now unified. People that were spread far apart are now together. What is broken, God has redeemed. Another example, this one Uh, From Genesis chapter 3, and again, like at the Tower of Babel, God is breaking something. You all know this story. Adam and Eve have just eaten the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and are being thrown out of the garden. And the Lord pronounces curses on each of them. Animosity between men and women, along with great pain in childbirth and toilsome labor. There are curses, too, for the serpent. And yet... What God is breaking, he will also redeem. Because even in the midst of that curse, there is the kernel of good news. There is the promise that even though God is breaking something now, he is also, even now, beginning the work of redeeming it. Listen to what God says to that serpent. Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. 
Now, the offspring of the serpent might nip at our heels, but an eventual offspring of a woman, Jesus Christ, will crush the head of a serpent. Theologians have called this the the proto-gospel, the gospel before the gospel, the seed of what will become the gospel. It exists here even as a curse is being pronounced even there. Redemption is at hand. And this is God's normal way of working. This is how our God works. And it's how he works again after breakfast on this quiet morning, shortly after Jesus' resurrection. Peter is back at work fishing again in exactly the same way he was when he first met Jesus. The exact same sort of thing happens too. They don't catch anything, and Jesus suggests that they cast their nets on the other side of the boat. And they catch all these fish and realize who it must be there on the beach. And Peter, who is apparently fishing naked, gets dressed and leaps into the water to get to Jesus as fast as possible. And you know, fair enough, And here's the sort of practical application section of the sermon. If Jesus shows up and you're naked, go ahead and get dressed. (laughs) Eventually, the rest of the disciples get all the fish into the shore and they have breakfast with their risen Savior. And then after breakfast, we get this incredible scene recounted in John 21. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? More than these. He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. A second time, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. What is Jesus doing? What's going on here? Why is Jesus playing what seems like a torturous little game with Peter? Well, he isn't. This is no game. Jesus is, in fact, doing here what God always does. He is being a redeemer. Because, you see, something was broken. Peter would have known it. It was, in fact, Peter himself who was broken, who needed redeeming. And this, of course, is a breaking much more profound than making the wrong choice about what job to take or what town to live in. But it's just like the people at Babel who have built their tower. And it's just like Adam and Eve having eaten their fruit. Because just a few days before, Peter had been asked a different question three times. Aren't you a friend of Jesus? Didn't I see you with him? Don't you know that man? No, no, and no. 
were Peter's answers. He was broken, had sinned, had done something cataclysmically wrong, turned his back on Jesus Christ, denied even knowing him. But Peter's God is a redeemer, the one who brings life out of death. And now Peter is standing in the presence of the risen Jesus Christ, whom the tomb could not hold. And now, once again, redemption is at hand. Like Pentecost, redeeming the Tower of Babel, Jesus here gives Peter the opportunity to redeem his denials. Three yeses in exchange for three noes. And John, our writer here, is making the connection explicit too in a very weird and funny way by drawing our attention to the charcoal fire around which these events take place. In John chapter 18, 17 to 18, we read, The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of these man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. And now in John chapter 21, verse 9, when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Perhaps this connection, charcoal fire to charcoal fire, seems silly to you or a stretch. But it's not. This is exactly how the biblical writers do this. Take a few minutes sometime and investigate the biblical use of gardens or rivers or weddings or certain mountains. It's overwhelming. God, the Bible wants us to know, is in charge of everything, every aspect of history. And this incredible web of connections exists to help us see that. And John here wants to make sure we don't miss it. The implication here is that Jesus has built this fire, maybe to make sure that Peter makes the connection. A charcoal fire was the setting for Peter's denials, and it is the setting for Peter's redemption. The scene in which his three no's are turned into three yeses. Now, please understand this. This is not Peter doing three good deeds to make up for three bad ones. It's not Peter balancing his account with Jesus. This is Peter announcing the faith that he has been given. This is just like Thomas's exclamation last week, my Lord and my God, an announcement of the new faith he has been given by Jesus. Because remember, Thomas doubted until Jesus showed up. But in showing up to Thomas, Jesus is again doing this redeeming work, bringing life out of death, something out of nothing. He is giving faith where there was only faithlessness before. And because Jesus shows up, Peter is now able to echo Thomas. My Lord and my God, I love you. I love you. I love you. It is a proclamation of faith, a faith received, not a faith achieved. Last week, Todd reminded you that you are just like Thomas. And this week, I'm called to remind you that you are just like Peter, abandoning Jesus when the chips are down, 
willing to deny your Savior to save your own life. You and I are just like these broken disciples, sinners in desperate need of redemption. I know that's bad news, but there is good news too. A charcoal fire is burning. Redemption is at hand. Now in this world, people are always being told to redeem themselves. Or when things actually work out, they're being congratulated for doing so. Just when I thought you couldn't get any dumber, the movie quote goes, you do something like this and totally redeem yourself. But self-redemption is impossible in practice. We cannot redeem by our own efforts because we cannot create faith where there was none before. We cannot bring life out of death or something out of nothing. That is God's domain. And it is where he does his best work. Work completed by Jesus Christ. Peter and Thomas, you and me, the whole sinful world is redeemed by the effort and accomplishment of Christ and only by the effort and accomplishment of Christ. Thomas said, my Lord and my God, because of what Jesus had done for him. Peter says, I love you because of what Jesus has done for him. And we, we sing, we pray, we preach, we feast because of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus is your Redeemer. He has been at work since that proto-gospel in Genesis 3, crushing the head of the serpent, fixing the broken thing, your sin-caused separation from God. In him, by the finished work of Jesus Christ, you are brought home. In him, you are restored. In him, you are saved. Amen.